multiple times, and every, every time it's, it shows itself to be living and active, shaping us and molding us, cutting us to the heart. As Hebrews says, it's sharper than any two-edged sword cutting, uh, separating joint and marrow, and you know, um, revealing the thoughts and intentions of the heart or exposing the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there's nothing like God's surgical knife to, uh, to do heart surgery in us and uh, open up to us what he wants to open up to us as we're conformed to the image of Jesus day by day. So I, just, I ask the Lord that he would continue to, um, to do that and he would bless our time looking at his word. Uh, just this morning, I was talking with my, my sons. We were reading in uh, the Gospel of Luke about the two disciples that were on the road to Emmaus just after Jesus had been crucified and buried, and they were sad. And, and do you remember Elijah and Jairus? Who came and started walking with them? Jesus. Yeah. Did they realize it was Jesus? No. They didn't. They, later they did. And do you remember what he was telling them about? When they were walking, he was he was asking them, you know, what's what's going on? And they started to talk about this 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 person, Jesus, who was a, a mighty man of God and who they thought was to be the the savior of Israel. And they couldn't understand why he had been crucified and and, and buried. And Jesus began to open to them the scriptures. It says, "I would love to have been there to hear that uh, sermon, <laughs> that lesson." But he opened up the scriptures and showed them. That throughout the scriptures, that they all spoke about his his work, his uh, death and, and resurrection. And then later that night, as the once they once those two disciples realized it was actually Jesus, and they they run back to Jerusalem, which is amazing. They they walked, they traveled seven miles all day. Must have been exhausted, but then and then night had fallen. And once they realized it was Jesus. They made that trek right back that same night to go tell the disciples, the other the, the eleven, hey, we actually saw Jesus. And then he appeared in their midst. And the same thing, he said, these are the words that I spoke while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled, which were written in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms concerning me. And uh, Jesus himself uh, testifies that, that the books of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms were written concerning him. So this psalm that we're going to look at today, Psalm 2, is uh, one of the clearest messianic psalms in, in the scriptures, in the, in the book of Psalms. And in fact, uh, it's quoted multiple times throughout the New Testament by uh, the apostles and uh, in their apologetics and, and their, their gospel presentations. And um, we're going to read a couple in, in, in just a moment. But... Uh, there's no, there's no title that comes with Psalm 2. There's no, no instructions and, and no uh, explicit mention of who the author is. But it's, uh, even though there's no indication of authorship, it's assumed to have been written by David. And uh, for good reason, for in fact, uh, Peter, when he's speaking of, when he re- references the psalm, says, the mouth of, of, of our uh, father David you know, spoke these words. So, so we assume that, that it was indeed we take that at face value, and, and uh, that Psalm 2 was indeed written by David. But I want to just, um, considering that this is a psalm speaking about our Lord, uh, I want to take a minute to just read those a couple of those references in the New Testament. And um, 
We're going to start with Acts chapter 4, verse 24 to 31. So in Acts chapter 4, and this is just after Peter and John had been in the temple and had been arrested by the authorities there for preaching in Jesus' name, and they instructed them not to, and then released them, and they went back to the others and uh, prayed this prayer. And this is uh, chapter 4, Acts chapter 4, verses 23, or 24 through 31. Uh, well, I'll start with verse 30, 23. And being let go, James, or Peter and John went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. So when they heard that, they raised their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, you are God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the mouth of your servant David have said, why did the nations rage and the people plot vain things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. Now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that that with all boldness they may speak your word. So there in that prayer, they quote from Psalm 2, and they point to the fact that this really is a prophecy about these various rulers and people coming together and assembling themselves to, to, to take out the Lord Jesus Christ, to have him removed. But it says that this is part of God's purpose and plan. Um, and then in, in Acts chapter 13, verses 22 and 23, and 32 and 33, look at that very briefly. And this is the Apostle Paul. He's speaking in Antioch in the synagogue there. And he's giving a gospel presentation. And in verse uh, 22 of chapter 13, he says, And when the Lord had removed him, meaning Saul, he raised up for them David as king, to whom also he gave testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. And from this man's seed, according to the promise, God raised up for Israel a Savior, Jesus. And then continuing in verse 32, he says, And we declare to you the glad tidings, that promise which was made to the fathers. God has fulfilled this for us, for us, their children, and that he raised up Jesus, that is, as it is also written in the second Psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And then uh, in Hebrews uh, one chapter one verse five. That same verse from Psalm two that was just quoted is also quoted again in Hebrews one, where it says, "To which of the angels to which of the angels did God ever say, "You are my son, today I have begotten you." Again, quoting from Psalm two. So we we know that the Psalm 2 is speaking about our Lord Jesus. So as we look through, we're going to go through this Psalm. And as we do that, 
I want you to consider that this is an introductory psalm, the second psalm of the whole book of Psalms, 150 psalms. It really sets the stage for all of the, the, the prophets, the prophecies that we see pointing to the Messiah and provides us with an understanding of the person of Jesus and the purpose of Jesus, the person and purpose and who he is and what he's come to do. So let's go ahead and take a look at Psalm 2. It's arranged into four stanzas, four clear stanzas, which is uh, each one is three verses. And um, we'll take each one, one by one, and um, with the Lord's help, behold beautiful things in the Word of God and, and make application. So let's start with, with verses 1 through 3. It says, Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, His Messiah, saying, Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. It's quite an introduction, quite an opening line of a psalm. Why do the nations rage? The nations meaning the, the, uh, the goyim, the, the Gentiles, those people that are outside of God's people. And it's plural here. Why do the nations... So this, from, from the Hebrew perspective, we're looking at people outside of the people of God. And it says, why do the nations rage? Some translations have uh, assemble tumultuously. So that the word... Therefore, rage is this idea of this, this loud clamor, and this, this agitation, and, and a coming together, a, a, a restless crowd coming together. So why do these nations rage? And the people plot a vain thing. The, the word plot there, haga, is the same exact word that we looked at last time when we looked at Psalm 1, the word for meditate. Remember, uh, the, the righteous man, uh, blesses that man who meditates on the, 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 the law, law of God day and night, meditates. And it's an onomatopoeia, haga, just kind of this like murmuring that, you know, you're, 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 you're stewing over and you're speaking and repeating and thinking about. Well, that same word is used here. But these people that are assembling together and raging are not meditating on the word of God. No, they're, they're plotting something very different. But the, the verse here says they plot, why do they plot a vain thing, a vain, a meaningless thing? This is a, a thing that's, that's fruitless. What they're devising in their hearts and stewing over, it's not going to bring about any success. It's not going to bring about anything. It's meaningless. It's vain. It's vanity. But they continue to do that. Look at verse 3, uh, or verse 2 rather. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord, against his anointed, saying, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. So now we have not just the people, not just the crowd, we have kings as well, rulers. And what are they doing? They're setting themselves. They're taking deliberate, a deliberate committed stand against the Lord. And against 
his anointed one, his Messiah. That's, that's literally what the anointed one is. It's the Mashiach, the, the Messiah. Uh, in Greek, the Christ. So they take their stand against the Lord. It reminds me of what Jesus said in, in Luke ten sixteen. He says, whoever rejects me rejects him who sent me. He told the, the Pharisees in, in the Gospel of John, he said, I and the Father are one. So as these kings, these Gentiles, these peoples and the kings set themselves against the Lord and against the Messiah, they're, they're taking stand against God. And this is what they say. They say, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. How do they view the rule of, of God? How do, they, how do they view the rule of his anointed? Of course, the anointed one. Who are who some people who were anointed, Elijah, in the Bible? Who would be anointed? What kind of people? Kings, that's right. You know, can you think of one king that was anointed? David and Saul, they were both anointed king, right? Well, here, this anointed one is the one that God promised to David, the anointed king David. He said, there is going to come someone, one of your descendants, a seed from your own body, who will... who will reign forever in righteousness. So this anointed one is king. But why do the rulers here take their stand against the anointed one? And why do they say, let's break their bonds? How do they view the rule of this Messiah? They view his rule as, as uh, oppressive, right? Let's break their bonds. They, they see it as bondage and as being tied up. Let's cast away their cords. The... God's rule is, is bondage to be broken and, and coercive to be thrown off. How often do we still sometimes go back to that, that thinking that the Israelites had when they think, oh, if we were back in Egypt, and they forget what true slavery was, right? And they think that um, being led by the Lord is, is, is much to is much worse and that the slavery and the bondage of Israel is to be preferred. But the rule of the Lord brings true freedom. Right? What is it that, what is it that truly holds us captive? It's a sin. That's what Jesus said. He said anyone who, who sins is a slave to sin. And when the, the Pharisees said, we've never been slaves of anyone, Jesus said, You've been slaves to sin your whole life. That's the, the bond is to be broken. <clears throat> Let's look at the next stanza. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. So when they say, let us break their bonds, the bonds of the Lord and, and his Messiah, let us break their bonds and cast away their cords as they plot a vain thing. And the Lord responds with what? He sits in heaven and laughs. That's very interesting. It, that, that verse 4 there, it says, he, sits, he who sits in heaven. Right? That's a very important detail. Heaven is the throne room of, of the universe. Right? That's where the throne of God is where all power resides. All control resides. 
So God is really the one in control as these rulers, these earthly rulers, plot to overthrow the Messiah. The Lord sits in heaven and he laughs. What plan can succeed against, against God? The Lord shall hold them in derision, continues in verse 5. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion, he says. So he speaks in his wrath and, and distress, and distresses them in his displeasure. As Hebrews says, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the, of the living God. And as I read this, I can't help but thinking about the Tower of, of Babel, right? Where the, the, the great men of earth come together as one people and they say, let us build a tower to the heavens and make a name for ourselves. And then one of the most, I think one of the most ironic statements in scripture <laughs> comes after that and says, the Lord, who is in heaven, says he looked down and, and, and it says that he, he said to, he said, let us go down and see this thing that they are doing. So the irony of let us build a tower to the heavens and make a name for ourselves. And God, who is in the heavens, says, let us go down to them. Right, the, 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 the contrast, the juxtaposition of, of these, these men trying to bring the, you know, the world's best technology and all their strength to, do, to build the best thing they can build. And God says, well, we, we've got to stoop down and go down to them to see what they're doing. And so this is the, this is the God who sits in heaven and laughs at those who plot vain things against him. Who's really in charge? Verse 6, it says, I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. So we have the kings of earth in verse 2. But in verse 6 here, we have the true king, the king of kings that has been installed on the holy hill of Zion. Of course, Hebrews 12, 22 references Zion. And it says that Mount Zion is the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. And again, the heaven being the throne room, the, the true control room, so to speak. So who's really in charge? It's the anointed one that has been installed by the God of heaven on his holy hill, the heavenly Jerusalem. And we start to see why it is a vain thing for anyone to plot against God and against his purposes. Let's look at verses 7 now. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and you shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. But that verse seven, today I have begotten you. You are my son. Today I've begotten you. Well, we just read where, where, uh, the, where Hebrews quoted that. And uh, the Apostle Paul also quoted that. But where else have we heard those words? You are my son. Well, Matthew, uh, Matthew chapter 17. And Luke 3.22. Let's look at Luke 3.22 first. This was, this was when Jesus came to be baptized. 
by John. And it says, The Holy Spirit descended in bodily form like a dove upon him. And a voice came from heaven which said, You are my beloved Son, and you I am well pleased. There's this phrase, You are uh, my Son. This is the singular Son, right? Now we are called the sons of God, the children of God, the sons and daughters of God. Angels are sometimes referred to as the sons of God. And Job, the sons of God, came to present themselves. But nowhere is anyone spoken of as the Son of God. And, and in the rest of verse 7, it says, Today I have begotten you. I have begotten you. So this is not, you know, as, as, uh, as we say, the begotten, not made. Jesus is set apart from all other sons of God. Adam is also called the Son of God, but he was formed by the hands of God. But Jesus... The Messiah was not made. He is the begotten, the only begotten of the Father. He is God Himself. So we see that this is not talking merely about uh, David or, or some other uh, king, earthly king, but this is God Himself in the flesh, Jesus, the Messiah. And the other place is the Mount of Transfiguration. Let's look at Matthew chapter 17, verses 1 through 6. Now, after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. And then Peter said, answered and said to Jesus, Lord, it's good for us to be here. If you wish, let us make here three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And suddenly a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved son and whom I am well pleased. Hear him. And when the disciples heard it, when they heard, they fell on their faces and were greatly afraid. So the first time in the Gospels we hear, we hear the, the voice of the Father saying to Jesus, You are my beloved Son, pronouncing that this is the Son. In that, in that instance, Jesus is being baptized. And remember John, he said, I said, why am I baptizing you? I need to be baptized by you. And Jesus says, let us do this, for it is fitting now to fulfill all righteousness. Because at that time, what had Jesus come to do? He was identifying himself with us as sinners in order that it says that he who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God, right? And Romans 8 says that uh, he, uh, he might, or he, let's turn to it here, Romans 8 <clears throat> He says that um, God sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. And so he can condemn sin in the flesh so that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So in that first announcement, this is my beloved son, comes in that context of Jesus coming to take our sins 
the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And then the second time we hear it in the Gospels is on the Mount of Transfiguration. First time, a humble servant taking on the form of sinful man, being baptized. He who needed no baptism, no washing away of sins. So in humility, he's announced as the, uh, the, the beloved son, the lamb. But in the transfiguration, we see Jesus being changed into something so bright that it says that uh, brighter than, than, than any, any, uh, any bleached garments. And uh, this, this, they, James, uh, Peter, James, and John, who were with him, were given this, this special vision of the glory of Jesus in its fullness, in its fullness. And they were, they were afraid. It says they fell on their faces before, before him and were afraid. So here we see the, the glory of Jesus that later we see in Revelation as well, after Jesus has ascended. And that might rightly be um, associated with Jesus as the lion, the lion of Judah. Earlier in the service, we, we read the passage from Revelation that spoke about the lamb. And uh, in Revelation 5, uh, we start in verse 6. Uh, I meant to start in verse 5, but uh, in verse 5 it says, One of the elders said to me, do not weep. There's a scroll there and they're looking for someone who's worthy to, to open the scrolls. It says, do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tri tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. Jairus, how would you feel if you saw a lion in your house, in your room? How would you feel? You feel would you feel sad? Afraid, right? Are lions powerful? Yeah. They're very powerful. So as John looks to see this lion of Judah, what does he see? He says, I looked and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures, in the midst of the elders, stood a, we expected him to see a lion, stood a lamb as though it had been slain. Would you be afraid of a, of a of a, a lamb, Jairus? No. Especially if it was one that, that had been uh, injured or killed? Could it do anything to you? No. We, you wouldn't feel the same way, right? So this, this incredible juxtaposition of Jesus as the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world and the Lion of Judah who has all power and authority. In this Psalm, Psalm 2, we see little glimpses of both of these things. In After verse 7, verse 8, it says, Ask of me, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. Right? In Psalm 72, which we sang earlier, speaks about his rule going from, from sea to sea, right? Of all the kings bowing down before him. This is a conquering king. Listen to Psalm 110. <clears throat> Psalm 110, 
another very famous messianic psalm says this, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion. Rule in the midst of your enemies. The Lord is at your right hand. He shall execute kings in the day of his wrath. He shall judge among the nations. He shall fill the places with dead bodies and he shall execute the heads of many countries. He shall drink of the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he shall lift up the head. You see this this conquering king being described. The Messiah is a conquering king. And again, in in Revelation, look at Revelation uh, chapter 17, verses 12 through 14. It says, The ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have received no kingdom as yet, but they receive authority for one hour as kings with the beast. These are kings of the earth. Remember the kings of the earth Psalm 2 spoke of in the, in the second verse? These are of one mind, right? Taking counsel together. They will give their power and authority to the beast. The beast stands in opposition to God. It says these will make war with the lamb and the lamb will overcome them for he is the Lord of lords and king of kings. Those who are with him are called, chosen, and faithful. And then Revelation 19, verses 15 to 16. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. Remember Psalm 2, verse 9? He will rule them with a rod of iron. Think of a, a iron. Can, can you break iron, Elijah? No. If I gave you a a rod of iron, could you bend it? Could you do anything to it? Yeah, iron's very strong. So he rules with a rod of iron. There's no one that will break his rule. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So he is not just any king. He is the king of all kings and the Lord of all lords. And all the kings of the earth will bow down before him. And he alone will rule over all the earth. So if this is the description of this this king, this Messiah, that God has installed on the holy hill of Zion, then what does that mean for those who are opposed to him? What does that mean to those who are opposed to him? Well, look at verse 10 in Psalm 2. Now, therefore, be wise, O kings. Be wise. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Be wise. What do the Proverbs tell us about wisdom? What's the beginning of all wisdom? It's the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. He says, he says, he continues in verse 11, Psalm 2, Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Rejoice with trembling. That's a strange phrase, isn't it? How do you rejoice with trembling? Well, I'd like to turn to 
Isaiah chapter 66. The first two verses of Isaiah chapter 66. Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. Where's the house that you will build for me? Where's the place of my rest? For all these things my hand has made. And all these things exist, says the Lord. But on this one will I look. On him who is poor and of a contrite spirit who trembles at my word. We start to see this picture of God's mercy. Rejoice with trembling. Those who tremble at the word of God can rejoice that God comes and makes his covenant with those who fear him. Right? And as we heard earlier in the, in the prayer of confession, that God will remove our sins from us as far as the east is from the west. You know, Romans tells us that this king who will conquer all of his enemies is also the Lamb of God who has come to make his enemies into his children. Right? For, for God showed his love in this, that while we were yet his enemies, Christ died for us. In verse 12, it says, Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way. When his wrath is kindled but a little. Kiss the son. You can think of Esau. Right? Esau and Jacob. Jacob kissed Esau. There was, there was uh, enmity between them. But when they came together after many years, there was reconciliation. And that kiss was a kiss of, of welcoming Right? An acceptance. Joseph kissed his brothers after he, after he revealed himself to them. They were afraid, but Joseph kissed them, showing that he was making peace with them. And Moses kissed his father, uh, his father-in-law, Jethro. It says he bowed before him and kissed him, showing honor, showing honor and uh, respect to him. So when we kiss the son... We, we, come, we draw near to Him and we embrace the peace that He offers to all those that come to Him for the forgiveness of sins. So, in this last stanza, verses 10 through 12, the kings of the earth that we see are in, are in big trouble, according to verses 4 through 6, the kings of the earth, and by implication, all inhabitants of the earth, are, are given a warning that presents a choice. To serve him, to serve the king, or to perish. To rejoice with trembling, trembling at his word, or stand against him and be distressed. To kiss the son. To have that relationship with him. To, to accept forgiveness. Or to be his enemy and invite his wrath. To continue as his enemy and invite his wrath. So that is the, the choice that all 
inhabitants of the earth are presented with before this King of Kings and this Lord of Lords. The very last verse of this psalm says, Blessed are those who put their trust in Him. And this almost bookends the, these first two psalms. You know, but last time we looked at Psalm 1, and it, and it opened with, Blessed is the man. Blessed is the man. We, we talked about how that word blessed really is, Oh, happinesses. Right? How blessed is that man who what? Who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, but who, who meditates on God's word. So we have this repeated blessing. So the Psalm 1 opens with, Blessed is the man who meditates on the word of God, who does not walk and join with the counsel of the ungodly, with God's enemies. And Psalm 2 ends with, Blessed. Blessed are those who put their trust in Him. And it's interesting, you see that juxtaposition, right? In Psalm 1, blessed are those who do not walk in the counsel of the ungodly. What do we see in the first three verses, in the first stanza of Psalm 2? We see the ungodly coming together, right? And and meditating on, on, on plans against God and against the Lord against his anointed one, against Jesus. That's what their meditation is on. And they stand opposed to God. But they will perish. And they will be distressed by the wrath of God. But the man who does not walk in that counsel, but who draws near to the Lord and puts their trust in this king, who is not only the Lion of Judah, but who is the Lamb who has come, to take away the sins of the world so that the enemies of God might be made into the children of God. So when we put our trust in Him, we do not have to fear His wrath. But we have the blessing, the happiness, the joy, the true joy of knowing that He is our Savior and our King. So this is a a continued encouragement to draw near to the Lord as the King of Kings who is in control and whose purposes will stand, who will conquer all of his enemies. Right? From from, uh, From the east, as far as the east is to the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. And he brings us into his kingdom that will be from the river to the ends of the earth. So let us not be like those who meditate on, on things that, uh, on purposes that are against God, but let us meditate on, on the word of God and on his purposes for his people and uh, for, for this world. It's very easy for us to, to slip into the old mindset that, that serving the Lord is, is bondage. And that's, that's what the evil one would want us to believe. But the true bondage is bondage to, to sin. And Jesus himself breaks that bondage. Uh, Matthew 
In Matthew chapter 11, Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. You will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. We draw near to the sun, and if the sun sets us free, we are free indeed. So let us draw near and kiss the sun and thank God that this conquering Lion of Judah, who will destroy all of his enemies, is also the Lamb of God who's come to take away our sins and to make us into his, his children. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you are reigning, that you are the King of kings and Lord of lords. We thank you that there's no purpose of yours that can be thwarted. And even the, the, the plots and the schemes of your enemies work to, to accomplish your purposes. As we were reminded in Acts, how even those who conspired against you, Lord Jesus, in putting you to death, served your purposes so that you might be lifted up in providing the sacrificial atonement that gives us forgiveness of sins and gives us new life. We thank you that, that we don't have to accomplish purposes, uh, our own purposes, but that we can rest in knowing that you will accomplish your purposes. Give us hearts that are um, open to, to all that you want to accomplish in us and through us and in this world. And give us hearts that, that continually go before you, um, meditating on your word and um, drawing near to, to you. You said that you, this is the one to, to whom you look, to whom you draw near. He who is contrite in spirit and trembles at your word. We thank you, God, that in you there is forgiveness. Therefore, you are feared, the psalmist says. And we ask, God, that um, you would continue to give us eyes to see, spiritual eyes to see that you are the King of kings and Lord of lords, that we would not be afraid of the, of the rulers of this world, but that we would know that your, your reign is, is forever. And that we would also have the heart of the Messiah who came to, to offer salvation freely to his enemies that they might be made into his children, to all who believe on his name and repent. We ask God that you would give us that same heart that we also would hold out uh, your word of life and hold out your gospel to those who are perishing so that they might be reconciled as well to you and find refuge in you, Lord Jesus. We thank you for this day. We thank you for your word. Continue to to mold us and shape us by your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.